Here's what I need to know. Do you have a girlfriend? Uh, yes, I do. I'm sorry, I, I, I'm sure you're a very nice young woman. Though. Hey! Yeah. Wait till I offer before you turn me down. So you give me stacks of movies, and I've never heard of them. So when you said you're going to give me a movie called Vibes, my best guess was that it was going to be like um, about a, a band. It was going to be like a music movie. Really? Yeah. I would have gone horror with Donald Pleasance. Vibes? Like Tremors kind of thing. Yeah. No, that never crossed my mind. So I thought it would be some tacky 80s movie about people with bad hair singing. It wasn't. It very early on established the fact that this was going to be about psychics. Yes. Which I loved. Okay, yeah. and it, the thing is, it's written by these two screenwriters. Okay, there's three three writers on the credits. One's Deborah Bloom, who came up with the basic idea. And then it was taken over by two very experienced writers, Lowell Gantz and Babalu Mandel. Crazy names, but these oh, guys... Babalu Mandel has done incredible stuff. Well, they're, they're a team, so anything that you've seen by him yeah. is by the other guy too. So things like, off the top of my head, Parenthood... Um, uh, City Slickers, Splash. Well, basically all the Ron Howard ones. So Splash, uh, Night Shift. Uh, that's the only two Ron Howard ones. I can a League think of, of Their Own, which is about women. I love baseball. a League of Their Own. Uh, City Slickers. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So yeah, I mean, and plus obviously things like Laverne and Shirley and that, which is where they started. And well, that's Happy a TV Days. show, is it? Yeah, which is how they knew Ron oh, Howard. Well, so. Yeah, well, they're they're um, a top comedy writing team. I used to rent movies just because they, they had credits on it. So I, I followed their work. And they don't just write comedy. They're good at story as well. So they're really top Hollywood screenwriters. So my guess is that the, the story for this was originated by um, uh, Deborah Bloom, whom I'm just checking to see if she's got any other credits. But she's she gets this coast. Oh, she's interesting. Let's have a quick look. It does feel like it's a rewritten script. Yeah. She's got some credits, but not a lot. Uh, there are things like a UFO cover-up, Life After Death, Psychic Detectives and Martians, a t- t- series of TV documentaries. She worked on The Bionic Woman. That's a cool thing to have worked on. Ancient Aliens, which is... We were talking about Chariots of the Gods in one of these, I think, at some point. Oh, well, I was talking to somebody about Chariots <laughs> of the Gods, Ancient <laughs> Aliens. So that makes a lot of sense. Into So it's this nutcase story about um, ancient Inca magic. Yes. There's an ancient... Or power. Ancient Inca MacGuff, magical MacGuffin, yes. which is established in the first few moments of the movie. Uh, and then we entwine that with some lovable psychics from New York. Now, there's lots to love about this movie. The movie doesn't work, I think. It doesn't. Oh, we agree. No. But, but it's lots to love. There's lots to love along the way. This is a film that I can't believe I didn't know existed. I only I found out about this about two it's, years ago. Oh, that's interesting. Um, how I don't know is beyond me. I love Jeff Goldblum. I adore Cindy Lauper. I had uh, no idea she'd acted. Now, if I'd been forced to guess why you had discovered this movie, I would have guessed Cindy Lauper. Well, I was um, I was chatting to Jamie Lemon about Cindy Lauper, and it turns out we're both Cindy Lauper fans. And it was his wife that said, you must have seen Vibes. And I went, what the hell's Vibes? 
and looked it up. Jeff Goldblum, Cindy Lauper, Peter Falk, and I'd not heard of it. And Julian Sands. It's a well, I don't like to include Julian Sands because I like him. Really? Do you, you don't like him in the, just don't like him generally? Is that right? I yeah yeah. I think well, he's terrific. And well, he's... we'll do Dario Argento's Phantom of the Opera one day, and you'll hate him forever. <laughs> I'm mostly known from Warlock. Yes. Which is uh, you know Richard E. Grant's wonderful accent. <laughs> well, that's another movie we should do. So, <laughs> the, the the what is great about this is Cindy Lauper, Jeff Goldblum, Peter Falk, and for me, Julian Sands. Yeah. So we cut from this sort of action sequence which involves streams of light from the top of a pyramid in what turns out to be Ecuador, ancient Inca pyramid. Uh, it's sort of a Raiders of the Lost Ark type thing. And then we go straight to the Psychic Institute in New York where we establish these characters who all have curious powers like Jeff Goldblum has the ability to pick up an object and sense the history of the object. Like yeah. he picks up a knife and a killer used it and he said, oh, why did you give me this knife? I won't be able to get it out of my head all day. And Cindy Lauper's got like a spirit guide? Yes. Yeah. So, I can't remember her name. Oh, yeah, it is. It's something, it's like, something like Irene. Something like that. I, oh, that's going to annoy me now. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> she's not. The spirit guide is not credited in the list of five. <laughs> she does not appear. Full casting group. So, uh, so you've got this lovely sort of comment team. What happens is Peter Falk is, is basically a crook, although it's not immediately evident to our friends, Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper. Well, what's immediately obvious is that Jeff and Cindy will eventually get together. There's a slow-burning rom-com. This is partly where the film doesn't succeed, because I don't find them convincing as a couple. There's no chemistry there. Fair enough. Fair comment. Um, The trouble with Jeff Goldblum is that he has a very distinctive way of working. As such, when you cast him as a romantic lead, he's not terribly convincing. The only times I think I've seen him convincing... The Fly? I thought he was. With Gina Davis. Yes. And again, in, I think, Jurassic Park with Laura Dern, I think he has good chemistry with her. Interesting. He married them both. Ah. So from that point of view, I oh, think you have to... That. Yeah, I think it's very... Because if you look at something like uh, Into the Night with Michelle Pfeiffer and Jeff Goldblum, it would be a great film if they just got on, but they clearly do not have any well, chemistry. Well, they may not have... Rom- uh, sorry, Cindy Lauper and Jeff may not have romantic chemistry in this, but they do have comic chemistry. They do, and I think a lot of the problem is that she is in her first big acting job, Yeah. and she's been forced on the film. Uh, the, nobody really wanted to make a Cindy Lauper film, but they were kind of stuck with her. How do you know that? Uh, from an interview with whoever re- Ken Quappis replaced, and I can't think Just who Hang that. on, who's Ken Quappis for a it's start? It's the director. Oh, yeah, well, I, when I saw the credits, I thought it was going to be a Ron Howard movie because he's a producer yeah. on it, and this was sort of his team, Yes, his writing team. So He was just producer, though. He was pretty hands-off for the whole thing. Well, I think he sensed a disaster in the nation, <laughs> frankly. Well, possibly. But I think the problem is, is that Jeff Goldblum must be very, very difficult to direct, and there are sequences in this film where you feel like maybe he's just gone off the record a bit too much. Well, and yeah, I think I she think... needed someone a bit more... Uh, grounded? Under control, yeah, grounded and a bit more understanding of the fact that she's out on a limb. Because when you look at it from that point of view, she is working way harder than she should be in that film. She reminded me very much, and this is one reason that I thought that she must have been your entry point for this, she reminded me a lot of the chick in My Chauffeur. Deborah Foreman. Yeah. In both, both in the fact that she seemed like a, a fairly a novice to me, uh, and also the sort of high-energy kind of squeaky girl performance which I'm not knocking I think 
uh, Cindy Lauper is great in this. Do, yeah. She's basically squeaky Jersey girl, but she's very engaging, and I thought she, she entirely worked. In she the comes part. across very likable. Yeah, which isn't easy given the part is quite patchily written, and especially that last thirty minutes, which will come to it, it's, well. It's all she's a bit of a cliche character. The, they're not either of them very good characters but I love them together because he's so tall and she's so short and like when they're doing a dance number all the physical comedy is really well realised yeah. and when you're talking about Jeff Goldblum being difficult to work with I think what you mean is not that he's stroppy or obstreperous but that, that he's he's in that, in that case in the sense he's always going off on, in crazy flights of fantasy yeah. uh, which when they work are wonderful and I I that's what I love about Jeff Goldblum. That's one of the things I love about Jeff Goldblum. Probably when you mention The Fly, I think that's the only film where he's completely under control throughout from the director. It makes sense because Cronenberg comes across to me as sort of a Kubrick-type control freak. I don't know that for a fact, but just from the, his, his, the style of his films. I'm also trying to think. I've got a feeling that's probably the only proper drama that Goldblum's done, isn't it? Everything else is a bit light-hearted or comedy. Well, it's a terrific movie. So mm. Goldblum is wonderful, but I've got... The movie really doesn't work, and I, I, there's two major. I think there's two major reasons the movie doesn't work. The first one is um, Gantz and Mandel are wonderful comedy writers, but they just are not genre writers. So they do not know what to do with the supernatural angle of this. Yeah. The fact that two, yeah, oh, you agree? That's wonderful. No, I do. I think it's really flawed, but I also think it's very watchable, and it's fascinating. It is fascinating, and <laughs> I, I just. The, the reason I uh, am being as negative as I am about it is because it had great potential. Like you could have taken mm. that story and done it wonderfully because they just don't understand how to do supernatural stuff. So they could, they all, so to sum, summarize the problem there, if instead of being a couple of psychics, Jeff Goldblum had been an archaeologist and Cindy Lauper had been a historian specialising in pre-Columbian artefacts, the movie would be exactly the same. The, their powers never decisively come into it. But it also, I mean, it clearly is coming off the back of Romancing the Stone, and it would have been way too similar to that in 89. If they had been archaeologists. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm and not I get saying... the feeling that the whole psychic angle is purely to get them away from that. And I suspect that in the original draft, before uh, Mandel and, and yeah. Moss's Faith came on board that probably there was a totally different ending to this film, which was more in keeping with the first half. You mean more supernatural? Yeah. Yeah. I think the ending they've got seems to be... Well, certainly the money seems to have run out. Because we're on a terrible soundstage uh, with AstroTurf. I, I was um, not arguing for, for changing them to an archaeologist and historian by mm. any means, but what I meant was no. it just shows that, that they didn't take advantage of this these wonderful characters who have supernatural abilities. They might as well not have those abilities. But like I say, those abilities are used much better in the first half of the film. So you've got that sequence with Jeff Goldblum where he puts his hands on the table and he says, someone's had sex on this table. And the two people interviewing both look at each other really furtively. <laughs> I like that. Those jokes that is, work. That's not even the first half of the film. Actually. That's like the first 15 minutes. Yeah. When we're setting Why do you got the... an interminable 10-minute ink of it at the beginning? Yeah, but as soon as you move to New York and introduce these characters... That those setups are quite good, where yeah. you show the kind of powers they've got, but they then do nothing with it. Also, the powers diminish enormously. So you've got the German guy that's following them around, who seems to be able to just pluck Ingo. things up, but he doesn't seem to realise he's going to get shot any minute. So if he can look, I couldn't remember what his power was. I mean, that was part of the problem. He just seemed to he seemed to be able to predict 
events. Because yeah, he predicts which card's going to come up, a yeah. street gambler. At the, that's how we're introduced to this whole sequence. Yeah, so that's not great. Um, and when we're... In, Cindy Lauper is introduced to the Psychic Institute along with Jeff, Jeff Goldblum and the uh, the heavy Inga, who you just mentioned. Yeah. Then we go to the racetrack with uh, Cindy Lauper and, amusingly, Steve Buscemi is there. You might presume, he is. Yeah. He's got a very brief part. Yeah. He's good, though. Uh, yeah, as her, as her, her dirtbag ex-boyfriend who just get he just gets her to predict the winners of the, the horse track for him and then he pisses off with another girl. You're frowning at me as though I've got something wrong. No, I'm not at all. I was just checking my notes further on to find out what the name of this bloody friend was because I think there would have been mileage in actually having her invisible friend visible. Oh, actually, as a character. that Yeah, yeah like those movies where you have the convention that some people can't see the ghosts, like uh, Blythe Spirit. Yeah. That, that, that's already way better than I'm going to do. I've just been hypnotised because I'm looking at the IMDb listings. There's a guy called Doctor Doctor Weiner. Do you remember who he was in the in the, the movie? Um, the, the, at the very beginning. Uh, I guess he was, because the point is, it's played by Dan Van Dyke Parks, who's this crazy uh, cult musician. He worked with the Beach Boys and, and oh, he's the guy in the Lycuda. hospital. Is he? He's the guy treating the the guy who's had a a freak out in the hospital, where Peter Falk takes him to visit, and you got that weird nurse who defends herself against everything. I suspect it's not because the dialogue quoted here is all right miss pickle that's pickle dr whiny whiner sorry so that sounds like it's a oh sorry institute. yeah no, that is the very beginning yeah. the very beginning but so this there's some crazy casting going on here oh but that makes sense because he's a he's like a pop musician too like like cindy lauper is although i hesitate to use the word pop because his stuff's so strange hmm. so it's hers now <laughs> Well, it, it, took I, a while. <laughs> it did occur to me that it's worth mentioning to younger listeners, almost said viewers, who Cindy Lauper was. So, do you want to just briefly tell us? I would argue that Cindy Lauper should have had the career that Madonna had. Uh, they both were around the same time. They were both New York girls. They were both very similar in style, very pop uh, focused, very uh, female empowerment focused as well in their work. Yeah, but Cindy Lauper didn't have that sort of um, in your face sexuality, if I remember no. correctly. In fact, she almost pushed the reverse and I, I just feel like she in the same way that I feel that Tom Hanks stole Steve Guttenberg's career I think Madonna stole Cindy Lauper's career did Cindy Lauper cover Girls Just Want to Have Fun was that her yes yeah and it was a cover as we discovered when we did Night of the that's Comet. the only reason I know that yes, yes. <laughs> and weirdly I don't think they use yes they do use it because there's a film called Girls Just Want to Have Fun which is very good um, and I think Lauper's even got a cameo in that um, so yeah, that's where the, that song. All of which is to establish for people who, who've never heard of Cindy Lauper. She was a pop star of yeah. the period, and that's her big hit. And she, so if you want to moved check into her Broadway, out. wrote Kinky Boots. She, I no idea. She wrote the she yes. wrote the book of Kinky Boots. She wrote Kinky Boots, yeah. Wow. I know. She that's, gets bugger all credit for the work she's done. No, it's, it's <laughs> all the more interesting. So, okay, I mentioned there are two big problems I feel with this movie. Hmm. Uh, one is the fact that that. You've got all these supernatural characters, including Julian Sands, who's the guy, he's the, the professor who runs the Psychic Institute. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't really enter into the story. It's not properly used. And it got me to thinking, if they were going to do this properly, how would they do it? And I thought, what you'd do is you'd hire Richard Matheson. Because he, he was a very experienced screenwriter. He's most famous for things like I Am Legend, uh, the, the shrinking, Incredible Shrinking Man. Long track record writing supernatural horror at The Night Stalker, another one of his... He could also write comedy. He was a tremendously proficient screenwriter. And if even if they'd collaborated, Babylon, uh, 
Gantz and Mandel, if they'd collaborated with Matheson, you would have had this really great movie where the supernatural stuff would have been interesting and it would have been spooky in a way that would offset the humor, you know, that would emphasize the humor. You'd have this contrast. And also it would have story value. In other words, the psychic stuff that was going on would actually contribute to the movie and contribute to the plot in a way that it just doesn't. At the it doesn't at all. It would be, I mean, because you've got things like Jeff Goldman's ability to touch things doesn't actually come into it. Weirdly, yeah. he develops a new ability when they get there of just kind of knowing which direction they should be going in. Yeah, which that's is why another I thing. Feel like you... the whole thing's been rewritten badly. Well, it's been rewritten by these two guys who are tremendous comedy writers, and as I say, are normally very good on story and structure, but they don't have a clue about this supernatural stuff. So they just, and it's fatal in a movie like this if you set up ground rules and then ignore them like somebody's got a certain power if they end up doing something else you've completely lost it what's really frustrating there are really good lines in there really good set pieces but they they could be in any film yes and the set piece i mean in the uh hotel at night when uh she and jeff goldman were talking and she's saying that she could get the best date in the room if she tried and she basically gets him to help her uh pull this guy what, what, this she's ambassador. saying that she, she can uh she wants a rich man yeah. and she's got this scam for for finding and attracting a rich man which is arguing about which side the bar opens on in a Rolls Royce Corniche yeah. and yeah so it's great I mean that's the, I think well, all the whole that, sequence is great but it's got nothing to do with the film well it, again it's Gantz and Mandel at their best but mm. not serving the needs of the distinctive needs of this story which could have been really cool if they'd gone for it uh, which they don't <laughs> so the, by the way the, in case anybody's wondering the vibes of the title means the sort of psychic vibrations that you pick up, but you don't, because they don't. They just don't cash in on that, which is crazy. Because it would be like them writing Splash and never exploiting any of the mermaid stuff. Yeah, which is just weird. Which they didn't. They do, They also didn't in that. Oh, that's interesting. But I seem to remember Splash at least had the thing about whether she's in water or not. You know, and Splash is just a, a good romantic comedy. I, the fact that she's a mermaid is entirely incidental, but. So th they this, did a better job of that. Yeah, but like I said, there are good lines in this. Um, like I've written one down, which is my last boyfriend was a guy who drank soup by putting his head in it, which I <laughs> well her which thing, said in Cindy Lauper's voice, <laughs> and she's set up as this kind of working class girl. And uh, there's a great bit where Peter Falk introduces himself to her by breaking into her apartment and taking a fudgesicle out of out of her fridge <laughs> and munching it. Cindy Lauper realizes somebody's broken into her apartment, and she pulls out this double-barreled sawn-off shotgun and she gets the drop on him. She does. And this is one of the advantages of the film is that she's never in peril. It's a very well-written part for her, which I think is probably her influence. Meaning that she's, she's a gutsy woman and not passive. Yeah, she never once needs to be rescued. Even when Goldblum uh, is required to rescue her at the end, she actually gets out of it herself. He's not really involved. She gets her imagined. She goes out of body experience, which is again a, an ability that she only hints at at the very beginning. Yeah, she does mention. At least she does set that up at the beginning, where she says that she used to do astral traveling. Hmm. So at least they set that. Up. I didn't mind that, but it does sort of. It's suddenly like she's got two abilities. You know, everybody should have one ability and be yeah. clearly. But what I was going to say was, I wouldn't sell. Uh, Gantz and Mandel sure I think they probably they do write strong women so it's not like they would have written this timid little victim and she would have come along and changed it necessarily because you know films like was it Gina Davis in League of Their Own yes so they, they do write super strong they do create strong female characters well, all the female characters in that film for the most part yeah 
Well, I, we should do that. I love that film. Well, d- by all <laughs> means, do. Because then I could praise these screenwriters for something that they do well because they're working in their comfort zone. They're not working in their comfort zone here. But the thing about that sawn off shotgun Sorry, anecdote, because yeah. you're talking about the head in the soup thing. Yes. Uh, he asked her where she, she got the shotgun, and she said, for her ex boyfriend, you don't ask a guy called Ice Pick where he, where he gets his <laughs> shotgun from. So she's set up as that kind of character. It's great. And Goldblum is a slightly buttoned up, um, slightly prissy academic who works in a museum. And obviously she's this life-affirming working class girl, the blue-collar girl, and they're going to get together. And as you say, it's not great when they get together. I was interested in what you said at the end about it all moving onto a soundstage cause, and looking cheap. Well, to me, and you might be talking about this, but it's this fog-shrouded bit on top of the pyramid at the yeah. end. But I thought that was... The most visually, the visually the best bit because I thought it was really well lit and moodily lit and uh, well, quite spooky. I get the feeling that they may have been hit by bad weather on location because it feels like the location stuff is rushed. And when you get to that, if you're in that position, once you get to the soundstage, um, Quappus, I've seen other. Who's stuff. the director? Yeah. His name is Ken Quappus. Yeah. Um, I've seen other things, and he doesn't exactly set the world light in terms of visual style. I think once you're on a soundstage, you have more options ahead of you, you have more time, and you can focus on your shots a bit more. But it's still a bloody small soundstage. I mean, it looks to me, I can't remember, this is a Paramount film? Because it looks like the Next Generation soundstage. Well, I've just looked through his credits, it's, they're almost all TV shows. You'd be, I'm Mostly comedy, you, yeah. You, well, Parks and Rec I know him from. Oh, okay. And I think he did The Office as well. Okay, well, so, that makes sense. When his name came up at the beginning of this, I thought, Christ, this guy's been working longer than I thought, but actually he hasn't really, he's just did a film and then stuck straight to TV again. He did indeed do The Office. Yeah. Uh, well done you for, for knowing it. Um, it's a memorable name. It's, it's a strange, strange name. But as you say, he's not been setting the world alight. Uh, I think that the top of that pyramid always would have been a soundstage shoot. I, I can't see them going to on top of an Inca pyramid anywhere. On location, you could... No, you didn't. You don't need to do... What I'm saying is that when it's in studio, it shouldn't look like studio. Okay. And to you, and um, yeah, it's got Batman Returns uh, vibe to it. And now we're talking about being on location. Somebody's banging! How dare they? We'll carry on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was awakened by a terrific banging. <laughs> what the hell are they doing? They're pretty put up the crosses. <laughs> <laughs> so. We're on location. <laughs> I mentioned way back at the beginning of this that there's. I felt there was two main flaws, and one was that the the screenplay doesn't embrace the supernatural stuff. Yes. The other main flaw is that uh, a lot of it's shot on location in Ecuador, with you know with lots of lovely llamas and stuff. But again, I think this is a mistake. I think it's a big mistake because when you're doing something exotic and unusual and supernatural you want it set against the most mundane setting. So if you're going to do a story about people with psychic powers, I would have kept them in New York and put them against really work-a-day, um, mundane, dull, boring settings. And as soon as you go somewhere exotic and foreign, any of the magical stuff, any of the supernatural stuff, I think is weakened because you're putting exotica against an exotic background. Once again, this could be something to do with the rewrite, which I think we both agree there has been a a big rewrite from the original story to whatever they ended up with. And I suspect that the Ecuador thing, I, I think, was probably going somewhere. It doesn't go somewhere in the final script. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're, they're there, but it, there's no point in them being there. It does give James Horner an opportunity to have a bit oh, of fun. No, that, that, you see, when 
I watched this, as I say, knowing nothing about it. So when the titles came on, it said Vibes and, and a pan pipe came in, started playing. And I liked the music right away. And of course, it turned out to be, as Matt says, James Horner. And a pan pipe was one of his signature instruments. And as Matt also says, this gives a legitimate reason for it because it's set in Ecuador. <laughs> one of the few places where people might actually use a pan pipe. I mean, you have to remember, one of my all-time favourite films is Commando. And James Horner's score for Commando is the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard. Tell have me you, more, tell me have more. Have you seen Commando? You know, Arnold I, Schwarzenegger I think it's the only um, brutal Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie from that period that I haven't seen. I've got to dig out the uncut version for you and we'll do that because yeah. um, it's astonishing. I don't know how he gets away with it. In a box standard action film with no connection to it whatsoever, he uses steel drums all the way through. Like Trinidadian steel drums, yeah. yeah. It's weird. <laughs> but I think James Warner was wonderful, and it's really a shame that he's gone. So that's another strength of this movie. I'm glad that Matt brought that up, is that it's got this nice James Warner score. But we're in Ecuador, and there's no reason for us to be in Ecuador. Uh, but something you said earlier gives clues me into one reason why we are in Ecuador. When you mentioned Romancing the Stone, of course it's about these um, mismatched couples in a comedy adventure in an exotic locale. Yeah. So that's what people were thinking. But you don't want people in an exotic locale who have exotic psychic powers because it's just for all the above-mentioned reasons, I think. I think you can make a good film of it, but I just don't think they did. So I don't think the location is at fault entirely, but I think you could still have had a good film at that location. But it just the trouble is, by this stage in this film, the psychic powers have gone out the window and instead Jeff Goldman's just become a compass. <laughs> okay, what is that? Oh, yes, pointing in the direction that yeah. they need to go. Oh, by the way, there is a sequence in this where an assassin, uh, femme fatale assassin, is sent after Jeff Goldblum, and in her attempts to kill him, they're racing around his hotel room, she goes straight out the window and falls to her death, which is, was a wonderful callback to a movie we saw called I'll Be Seeing You, in which uh, the, the, yes, would-be rapist hadn't really considered lunged that. after the heroine went straight out the window. I thought, oh, that's an, you know... It'd be terrible, nice wouldn't it, if all the other films I've given you for this have got the same sequence <laughs> and it just turns out there's some fetish of mine. Well, I, I, Throwing I, I, women out of windows! <laughs> I, I, whenever I sit down with these movies, I always do try and guess what aspect of, of your obsession has been triggered in this particular film. It's weird. It used to be spiral staircases. They'd turn up in everything I watched, but I think that's because I was watching a lot of Giallo and they're just full of spiral staircases. So, and yeah. all, I think Matt's been very unfair to Julian Sands because <laughs> when I saw him at the beginning, he turns up for like, a minute at the beginning, if that, at the Psychic Institute. And I thought, you know, he's got to turn up again because he's a major name and he's, he's, he's got a big credit. So sure enough, he turns out to be the big bad guy at the end with a very fetching line in neck scarves, I thought. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the, the, so the costumes in this were very good too. Well, and I, I think Lorpa has a, a different costume every Oh, scene. she's fabulous. Because she's dressed in, in, in kind of um, 80s tasteless slut manner, but it's really good. Yeah, I, she great. pulls off every outfit. Yeah, and it's hard fabulous. to know why, because some of them are awful. They are awful, but, but sometimes <laughs> they're kind of awful and yet sexy. Like, she's got this one one sort of um, sweater top with no back. Like the entire yeah. back scooped out. It's just fab. That's at the end of the hotel, yeah, isn't it? That yeah, that is the final scene with Jeff Goldblum. Um, <laughs> and they do that gag at the end where she gets knocked on the head and it causes a, some sort of psychic relapse. Uh, it... I, because that's how she got her psychic powers was by falling off a ladder, right? Yeah. And it's oh, I know. Mad trying to think of the name of her bloody her friend. spirit guide. Yeah. So what happens is at the very end she gets a new spirit guide who turns out to be Peter Falk, who's this this <laughs> lovable rogue who's been with them all, all along and got killed along the way. 
and also some of the violence in this, some of the killing just makes no sense at all. It's a bit of a tone shift. Um, yeah, right from the very beginning, like at the very beginning, like in the pre, it's not pre-title sequence, but it's before we go to New York and meet the main characters, we see a, a number of disposable bad guys discovering the magic glowy thing on top of the Inca pyramid, and they've got this um, uh, Incan local guide, and they just shoot him. And at that, you see, that kind of, the movie sort of goes off the rails at that point. There's a lot of needless death. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think Peter... Well, we're not... We're not, spoiling not the film quite severely film. here, but yeah. I don't think Peter Falk's death brings anything to the film. Except that final gag that she's stuck yeah. with him forever as a, as a her spirit guide. With the possible hopefulness on their part of a sequel, which, but let's face it, was never going to happen. <laughs> that would have worked so much better if you could have seen him. Yes. What you were saying about that they should have cast somebody really fun as the as her spirit guide, whose name you can't remember. I know it, but I'm just not going to tell you. Because it's you so fun watching you Have you looked it up? No, I don't. I'm thinking Eileen now, but it's not. It's something like that. Oh, God, it's going to be so upsetting. Um, the only other thing that really irritated me, and it's right at the very beginning, um, is when they're chanting at the pyramid. And somewhere in the chant, somebody has actually thrown in Almadby Padmium or whatever it is. They have. What is wrong with you? Why would you put that in there? Oh, it just well, sticks well, out like a sore thumb, and it's oh, got nothing to do with Incans. Oh, it, isn't that the bit where Sydney Lauper is like channeling? Uh, she does it later on, yeah. But the guy at the very beginning does it as well. It's the same chant. Oh, okay. I, d I hadn't even realised that. So th there's some magical chant that unleashes the Incan powers. You can tell how bored I am with this whole, <laughs> the whole strand of that. But what that does remind me, which is well worth being reminded about, is a couple of times Sydney Lauper is called upon to sing or to chant or to do vocal things generally and she's perhaps not surprisingly she's fabulous yeah i mean those are great moments because those are moments that where it would be so easy to fail and she just rises to it. And i guess as a terrific singer in her own right it's not surprising but it, it did really it did surprise me because it was just such a lovely moment in the movie all those moments were, and she just gets a chance to really show her chops and to excel which i really liked well, like I say, she has acted since this. I mean, she's done a few bits and pieces here and there, but nothing on this scale. And I, I think it's a shame. I think she might be quite interesting in the 90s, because this is, what, 88, 89, 88? She did a great job in a dog of a movie, mm. unfortunately for her. I mean, it, she rises it up. I mean, I think without her and Goldblum, this would not be anywhere near as good He's film. great, but Falk's great. And despite what Matt says, Julian Sands is great too. <laughs> Don't so, give me this Julian Sands nonsense. He made boxing Helena. It's... it's <laughs> Oh, well, obviously I have to watch that too. No, it's it's uh, so it's got all these this great town which is wasted because it's not properly structured. But I, I was looking through my notes and I, I'd forgotten. There's this wonderful line when they first arrive in Ecuador and unpack their bags in the hotel. He's so paranoid about getting a stomach bug <laughs> that he's brought all this food with him, all this dehydrated food. And she has this great line. She says, "It's the water that makes people sick." And she brought food that needs water. But then he opens another suitcase and it's full of these plastic jerry cans of water, which does lead to some good gags later on. Like when he's sitting at a table uh, in in the restaurant, but in the, the the restaurant, the hotel restaurant, she's got a cocktail with like a, a you know an umbrella in it, and he's got he's got this huge six liter thing of water, and he's got a straw and, a, and a, an umbrella in that too. It's just it's you know you could easily not spot that. It's fun, but the, these gags just aren't enough to solve the basic problems of this movie which is a shame but it's it's such a weird little movie and so little known that it's certainly worth a, a watch and it it's never gruelingly boring or, or you know it flows along quite nicely but you, you do sort of often think you know this is nuts in the sense of like why didn't they just do a better job 
becomes something of a fever dream an hour in where you think to yourself, is this actually happening? Am I watching these three people in this film? Um, I was overjoyed that it exists, but it was a bit disappointing. Yeah, I think so. that, that, that's a fair summary. But Cindy Lauper knocks it out of the ballpark. And I, as I say once again, if only they'd hired Richard Matheson, I think we'd be, this would be some kind of classic. Yeah, You need somebody who, who, who understands the genre, if you've, especially if you're going to send it up. There's no shortage of talent, it's just all pulling in different directions. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. I want your bed, all right. I dream about you and me in a house in Long Island. I'm only half a woman till I make love to you. Are you happy now?